Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following podcast contains explicit language. The Slate Audio Book Club is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's discussion of Life After Life, Kate Atkinson's epic historical novel about a woman who relives the first half of the 20th century over and over, trying to fix the mistakes that she and the world have made. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's DC Recording Studio. Joining us from our New Haven branch is Slate Senior Editor Emily Bazelon. Hi. Hey, Dan. And here in D.C. is our special guest this month, Slate Assistant Editor Katie Waldman. Hi. Hi. Welcome, Katie. We're so happy to have you here with us. So, as in all of our audiobook clubs, if you have not read Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, you should maybe wait to listen unless you love being spoiled. Because we will talk about the plot and the end of Life After Life, or in fact, the many, many endings of Life After Life, because it has a lot of endings. The life of Ursula Todd has a lot of endings. Also, um, Emily and Katie, if I drop dead in the middle of this podcast recording, we'll just start again from the beginning and see if we can make it better the second time through. Yeah, we should be able to do that. In the book, it's no problem at all. Right. It right. just happens. So I would assume that the same thing would happen here. So yes, that is the story of Life After Life. That's sort of the high concept gimmick of Life After Life is that Ursula Todd, this woman who we meet when she is born in 1910, keeps dying. She just keeps on dying. First, she dies during childbirth. And then she comes back and we see childbirth again. And then she survives childbirth, but then she drowns when she's five. Then she comes back again, and she makes it to five, and this time she doesn't drown, but then she dies of the flu, and so on, and so on, and so on. As the book goes on, and as her deaths start to accumulate, Ursula starts to be able to see, or at least feel, the ways that she can avert the ways that she had died in previous incarnations of herself. And she begins to change her own future and change her own life, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But of course, I am leaving out the way that the book actually starts, which is that the book actually starts with Ursula shooting Hitler in 1930. So that is a pretty big, splashy beginning. Uh, what did you guys think when you read that? What kind of book did you think this was going to be, Emily? I think the very beginning scene is misleading about the kind of book this is going to be. I mean, it made me think I was entering some sort of like period drama thriller. Later on in the book, once I really had a sense of these deaths and how they build, I was more forgiving about the beginning. But in the moment that I read it, I found it disconcerting. And I wonder if the book would actually be better off without just those two pages in it. I think misleading is a great way to put it. I was expecting some sort of John le Carré or James Bond affair when I first read the opening. And I was a little bit not turned off but wary. And then you sort of plunge into the more lyrical opening chapters and it sort of starts to feel more like what you'd expect from a Kate Atkinson novel. And I think I sort of found my footing more there. But I w 
wouldn't actually chop off the beginning. I thought it was like a really interesting, counterintuitive way to start. I agree with you, Emily, that it it does not have that much in common with what the novel turns out to become. But I think in the end, that was what I liked about it was that it grabbed me. Obviously, I mean, it's meant to grab you. But then I also liked how off my footing it put me as I got further into the novel. And for much of the novel, I kept thinking part of the fun and the puzzle of the novel to me was, well, how on earth is Kate Atkinson going to get from where we are now, from this little girl growing up in Fox Corner in rural England to someone who could theoretically put herself in the place of shooting Hitler in 1930. Like that puzzle was so interesting to me and watching it very slowly be teased out ended up being a lot of fun for me as I read this book. And so I was pretty happy that it started that way. Although in fact, doesn't it end up not making any sense? Um, I mean, maybe I'm... That's a great question. Let's. I think okay. that that might be a question to save for a little later in this discussion because I also have that question, but I think there's a lot of ground to cover before we get to whether killing Hitler actually makes a difference. <laughs> All right. We will set aside the killing of Hitler sure. for a moment. Can I say one more thing, Dan, about just going into this book and the way all the deaths in it accumulate. Yeah. You know, I feel like anytime I try to summarize this book to people, it sounds gimmicky and sort of silly, but it doesn't feel that way at all when you're reading it. And I think the main reason is that the deaths happen, but then immediately you turn the page and Ursula is alive again and we're in some other moment. There's never the moment of grieving or mourning or aftermath. And so right. there's a way in which the deaths can close a chapter without becoming this kind of maudlin theme throughout the book. Right. Like I did have a real concern about this as I started getting into the book that was like, oh, God, am I going to read a book where the first 200 pages is like all the different ways that a little girl can die? Right. Like, that is not so... <laughs> thrilling for the father of little girls. But you're right that if those stories were told from her mom's perspective or her dad's perspective, it would be like grueling and horrible. But other than that first death when she dies during childbirth, about which her mom is very matter of fact, in fact, all of them are in her point of view. And so, you know, the darkness comes and yes, instantly we're back and she's back and she has another shot at it. There's this great line pretty early in the book where Sylvie, um, Ursula's mom, Talks about how, you know, the second time around, Ursula came out with a cord wrapped around her neck, but she survived. She was saved from that and she, you know, was taken away from death. And she wonders, the line is, she wonders when death would seek his revenge. And a lot of this book did really remind me of like a very high toned version of the Final Destination movies. Like death Mm. was cheated of his prize and he keeps coming back. But then what was fun about it is that she finds ways to sort of start fighting back, to start fighting her fate. And so one of the really intriguing things about this book is the little and big ways that Ursula finds to keep herself from the fates that previous versions of her have encountered. And some of those, you know, some of those things are really subtle. Like instead of chasing after a doll and falling out the window, she lets herself be distracted by something that happens downstairs. And some of them are not so subtle at all. Like she pushes the housekeeper down the stairs to break her arm so that she won't go to London on Armistice Day and give them all the flu. Did you guys, as you were in the moment of these decisions she was making and the ways they were affecting her. Did you enjoy seeing those things happen and seeing those decisions being made in the way that I did? I think the book is of two minds about whether 
Ursula really, or maybe it's that there are so many different Ursulas, and some of them seem like they have some sort of second sight, and her mother takes her to a psychiatrist at some point because she's having these weird premonitions, and that's this real theme. And then in other parts of the book, Ursula seems like this utterly mortal earthly character who would never have such an impulse to go, you know, mysteriously push her lovely housemaid down the stairs. Did you guys feel like the book couldn't decide essentially how supernatural to get? Well, I thought that we were supposed to see it as she sort of started off in the beginning of the book as sort of naive and not really understanding what was happening. But then as these layers of life piled on top of each other, she sort of started to try to game the system. So maybe in the beginning of the book, she wouldn't be likely to really intervene in her own fate. And by the end, she's kind of learning the rules of the karmic game. And so it actually, it did seem believable to me. And I thought it was kind of pleasurable to watch her sort of learn, oh, well, maybe there are ways to adjust this little detail so that I don't fall off a roof and die. But it's never conscious and explicit, right? Not until not the like very she's... end. Not yeah, until that right. final life, which we'll talk about. But you're right that in most cases, it's that she gets like a feeling. Something inside her makes her feel like she has to do this thing. She has to... Uh, push her housemate down the stairs or she has to go back downstairs instead of jumping out the window or whatever. And I get what you're saying, Emily, because one of the things that is really interesting about this book is that there are these very gimmicky sort of rat-a-tat-tat sections where she is born and she dies, and then she's born again and she makes it to five and she dies, and then she's born again and she makes it to 12, and then she dies and then she dies and she dies and she dies. But then there are these very long stretches of long lives lived in which most of Ursula's life is not made up of these moments where she's gaming the system, as Katie says. There's the long, long life she lives where where she ends up living in Germany as a German citizen and making it almost all the way through World War II and, and coming to know Hitler and Eva Braun. There's this amazing 70-page section that is the whole horrible life that develops for her after she gets raped at the house and gets pregnant and has an abortion and then gets sick and her mother ends up hating her and then she gets stuck in this horrible loveless marriage and this violent. whole yes a mm-hmm. violent loveless marriage with an abusive jerk and that section is where the book really grabbed me and it's because it moved away from you know, the specter of death happening every second. And it's still in the back of your mind. It was still in the back of my mind when I was reading this section. Oh, at some point, this is going to be cut short by death. But in my head, for some reason, I thought, oh, but, you know, even when she comes back, she still is going to get raped and then have this abortion and then be married to this horrible guy. And what a bummer that this is the way this interesting person's life has become because it didn't dawn on me that it wasn't just that she could change the mistakes she made that caused her deaths, that in fact she could change other things. She could change just bad things about her life, bad things that happened to her family. And so when she died in that life, it was such a weird mix of like sadness for this character who I liked and relief that she was out of this crappy existence. And then when she went back in time and was born again and rejected the boy in the garden who would eventually rape her, thus sort of circumventing that entire terrible fate, it was such an amazing feeling for me as a reader of, oh my God, this story is completely wiped clean and anything could happen at this point. 
And it was like that feeling you have when you're having a terrible dream where you do something awful and then you wake up and you're like, oh, thank God I didn't actually do that awful thing or that terrible thing didn't happen to me. I'm free and clear of that stupid mistake I made. And that was what that felt like to me. And then that was when I totally bought into this book. I completely agree. I loved that exactly that feeling of exhilaration you're talking about. And I also thought that Kate Atkinson was making some really interesting points in the way that a novelist, the best way a novelist can, not explicitly, but saying something about women and what the choices were that were available to women in England in the 1930s and 40s and how you could imagine this ruined life in which this girl is deflowered, as her mother says, and essentially it's all downhill from there. Or you could imagine her having the gumption to, you know, kick the boy who is interested in preying <laughs> on her in the shins and get rid of him. And suddenly she's able to have this very interesting – one of her existences is not one in which marriage factors into it at all. It sort of feels to me like the main real central Ursula in the book is someone who goes on, has relationships with men, is very close to her sister, mm-hmm. does all this work for the British government, but is not in any kind of typical – female, um, the in, not in the usual vice. One of the things that all these different lives demonstrate, as you say, are the different options available to someone. And I liked that the thing that, as you say, that seemed like the core Ursula, the real her, was this very exciting, vivid, action-packed, often very sad and tragic, but still amazing life that she lived in the 40s as someone who worked for the home office and who was a a bomb warden in her neighborhood and did amazing things. And I love that that was, as you say, the life that seemed most vivid to you. Was that true for you as well, Katie? Yeah, well, I do think it's striking that the choices that she repeatedly made, I mean, she kept not going to school or she kept trying to be a secretary as opposed to going to Oxbridge or something. And she kept sort of enmeshing her own life with the war effort. And you sort of got a sense of character in this really weird way in the book, not just by assessing the choices they make in just one standard narrative, but by seeing where the continuities are in between all these narratives. So for instance, like I thought it was really interesting to look at Sylvie's character because she came across really well, I thought, in most of the stories. And then in that one life that Dan mentioned, when all of a sudden she basically disowns her daughter because she feels she's not intact anymore, she's been raped, somehow this is her fault, you see a different shade of her personality and it sort of builds into a much more complex picture of her. And Yeah, she turns so hateful. Yeah. And that <laughs> yeah, that really struck me too, that the choices that Ursula makes don't only affect her own lives, but they affect everyone. And, and in the end, that a lot of the choices she makes are are sort of centered around trying to find ways to save her brother, Teddy. Mm-hmm. So we'll get into that in a second. But first, let's uh, pause for a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. And on Audible, you can choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks. Listen to them on nearly any device, including the very device you are using to listen to us right now, which I hope is a, a 1950s tube radio like the kind that ursula would have listened to audible has a special offer for audiobook club listeners when you sign up for a 30-day free trial membership you'll get one free audiobook of your choice just visit our special url audiblepodcast.com slash slate abc there are literally thousands of books to choose from 
everything from classics to New York Times bestsellers. But here on the Audiobook Club, we like to recommend our next Audiobook Club selection, which is The Flamethrowers by Rachel Kushner. It is a very well-received novel that came out this spring about the New York City art world of the 70s and motorcycle racing and Italian radicals. Um, And it is available on Audible. It's read by Christine and Traster, so check that out. Your membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So please use our URL so Audible knows you're an Audiobook Club listener. Once again, audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. So... Uh, back to the game. Let's talk a little bit more about that family. You mentioned Sylvie, her mom, and sort of the different versions of Sylvie that we saw in this book. I really loved this book for many things, but I particularly loved it just as a portrait of a really interesting family with a lot of very complicated family dynamics going from the way that everyone feels about Izzy to the way that Izzy sort of adopts Ursula because she sees something in her to the way that everyone loves Teddy but sort of hates Maurice, the Mm -hmm. older brother, who's a real pill. I really just liked this family a lot and how changeable they were from life to life. What did you guys think of them? I agree. I think they're the ensemble cast of the book. And there's this great aunt role played by Izzy, the sister of Ursula's father, Hugh. And she is like the black sheep from the very beginning. She either does or does not, mostly does have a child. She, a teenage pregnancy child who she gives up for adoption. Right. And she also just plays this role in Ursula's life of presenting different options for her. You know, in most of the book, she becomes a successful children's book author, having written a book based on one of Ursula's brothers to his dismay. And then she goes off to London and has this big house. And suddenly you have this family that's very close and incredibly domestic in Fox Corner. And then you have Izzy presenting this very undomestic kind of flapper alternative. She's also great uh, just as a plot device, just in the sense that she's an alternate person who Ursula can go to in moments of crisis or in moments of triumph. And even just her house becomes like an important place for several crucial scenes in Ursula's life during World War II. You know, it's where she first hooks up with the local boy who later becomes a fire warden. And during the war in London, she gets to use Ursula's great wine cellar as Ursula and her screenwriter husband have gone off to Hollywood during the war. But yeah, she plays a great role in this. And I also really loved Hugh. Like, he's just Mm -hmm. such a great, just such a great book dad. Like, you don't get that many great book dads. And I loved him for that. I mean, he doesn't outwardly seem all that interesting at first, right? He just seems sort of stable and lovely. But I just, I developed so much affection for this guy. I'm not sure why. I mean, he's really good to Ursula and he is really good to all his children. But I think that I really loved him the most because of how sad he was at how horrible Sylvie turned in that one life, in the brutal rape and marriage and abortion life that Ursula lives. He's so saddened by her and what happens to her and how sad she is. And he worries about her so clearly, and he's so upset by what a horrible person Sylvie turns into in that life that that was what really, like I think, focused my affection for him. And so all his various deaths in all of Ursula's different lives were really sad. I mean, each and every one of them was really sad, and we really felt that. I really felt that, at least. 
Can I ask you guys what's going on with animals in this book? I mean, from the silver hair on the stroller to the live hairs to the foxes, like everyone's name practically means fox. Except for Ursula, who's little bear. Right. Well, right. So she's the bear. And then Hitler is the wolf. Apparently, Adolf means wolf. Mm. And, and then there are all these dogs that are scattered through. And I'm wondering if you guys have a grand theory of the animals in this book or if it's just sort of one of those repeated motifs that makes us think that, oh, there's a logic in the universe and there's some kind of karmic system in place. I wonder if you could plot the different lives of Ursula according to the animals. I bet you might be able to. But Mm -hmm. I also think that part of what Atkinson is doing is evoking with so much warmth and fondness, this particular moment in rural England, right? I mean, the place where Ursula lives is going to turn into subdivisions because it can't be very far from London. It just feels like it will be the suburbs. But when she's growing up, it's all about the bluebells and the stream and the cops. And there's just this lovely set of phrases that evoke the place for her. And it's really a loyalty to that place that comes to stand for her patriotism during the war. Sure. And that amazing passage at the spoiler alert death of her daughter, the one time that she has a daughter where she's just telling her daughter who's dying all these stories of her childhood in Fox Corner, which is the name of the house. And it's just the most beautiful writing among the most beautiful passages in the book, I thought. I'm actually going to read a little bit of that because I also was struck by that passage. And Emily, you're absolutely right that 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 natural world, both the plants and the animals, seems to be what she really fixates on in all of her lives whenever she becomes desperate and thinks of home. And so this scene, it's on page 378 of the book. It's in the life of Ursula's where she ends up living in Germany as a German citizen, married to a fairly important official in the Reich. And she ends up like staying with Hitler in his his magic mountain, they called it, uh, retreat early in the war. And But by the end of the war, she's completely broken. Her husband has died. Her house has been bombed out. Her daughter is ill. And she kills her daughter and herself with, it seems like, cyanide tablets. And here's the passage, which is so sad and really quite amazing. The noise of artillery fire was constant. She was gripped by the idea that the world was ending. If it was, then Frida must die in her arms, not alone. But whose arms would she die in? She longed for the safety of her father, and the thought of Hugh made the tears start. By the time she had climbed the rubble staircase, she was exhausted, weary to the bone. She found Frida slipping in and out of delirium and lay down beside her on the mattress on the floor. Stroking her damp hair, she talked in a low voice to her about another world. She told her about the bluebells in spring in the wood near Fox Corner and about the flowers that grew in the meadow beyond the copse, flax and larkspur, buttercups, corn poppies, red campion, and oxeye daisies. She told her about the smell of new-mown grass from an English summer lawn, the scent of Sylvie's roses, the sour sweet taste of the apples in the orchard. She talked about the foxes, the rabbits, the pheasants, the hares, the cows, and the big plow horses. Take this, she said, putting the pill in Frida's mouth. I got it from the chemist. It will help you sleep. That line talking to her about another world was so amazing, I thought, because it's not just that she's talking to her about the England that Ursula grew up with that Frida will never see, but she's really talking to her about all the other Ursulas, right? She's talking to her about all those other lives that she lived and knowing in a way it seems like, because this is the moment at which she says on the next page, she had chosen death over life. For the first time ever, she knew something had cracked and broken and the order of things had changed. This is the moment, it seems like, when 
she really starts to know and become aware that she is in charge of her fate in certain weird and unpredictable ways. So it seems like she's saying goodbye to Frida, not just here in this life, but forever, because she knows that all the future lives she's going to live, she can't end up stuck in Germany again. And so Frida can't be a part of those lives. She can't be a part of all those future lives. And that was really very moving to me. I like that interpretation of the last line. I actually was wondering whether you got a sense that there was some sort of like theological thing happening because then on the next page, you know, so she, this is the first time that she takes her own life and then immediately the next life that she's plunged into is this description of hell, basically. And you have um, explosions and demons howling. And it was just, I mean, I was wondering, okay, what does this mean that this is the first time she's taken a life and taken her own life? And then boom, next page, damnation. Right. But I I like your (laughs) reading. No, that's pretty intense, though. You've even got um, one of the other wardens from her post quoting Faust, why this is hell, nor am I out of it. Uh, right on that first page. That's intense. What do you think, Emily? I think they are both there. And that's like some wonderful layering that the book is offering us. And it's all in the text, but none of it is explicit. You know, a much lesser version of this novel would have a scene where she sits down with that psychiatrist and he is like, you know, there's an ancient story mm-hmm. I once heard of a woman who would be born in this century who would have the chance to change history, but I'm sure that's not you or whatever. Like, there would be some explanation. Instead, we just sort of get these vague intimations of, well, people believe in reincarnation and maybe that's something you're experiencing or maybe you have the second sight. Who knows? But yeah, there's no – nothing is made explicit whether it's the mechanics of how it's happening to her or what these things are meant to mean. and that. Is very nice, I think, but it also leads to situations like my confusion with the ending, which, Emily, you've already alluded to. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that ending and whether the choices that Ursula makes actually do change anything? Well, the reason we begin the book with her shooting Hitler is obviously the thematic idea that if you could go back and redo your life, you could not just prevent your own personal tragedies, but save all of us from, you know, the worst war the world has ever known. So in a sense, if you're going to set a book like this in the 30s and 40s, then shooting Hitler would become the ultimate goal. Right. And there is some real steps in one of Ursula's lives toward that endpoint when she moves to Germany and, as you were saying, Dan, actually marries this German functionary and gets to know Eva Braun. And yet, if I'm reading it correctly, her main interactions with Eva Braun are in the year 1939, much later. And so the idea that somehow she would have killed Hitler in 1930, I couldn't get it to track. And maybe I missed something, but I felt like the dates were super important to the book. It was my way of charting where I was because each of the chapter headings uses a date. And that way, when you go back in time, you know exactly where you're picking it up. And that was one of the real pleasures of the book for me, that you could loop back and say, oh, August 1926. Well, what happened in the last August 1926, 90 pages ago? And then you could map exactly how this different fork in the road that Ursula has taken, where it picks up from. So I was lost a little bit about why those 1930s and 1930 dates didn't seem to match up. But am I just being obsessive or also am I wrong about that? You're right that they don't match up. But I think that that was intentional in this case. I think what we're meant to understand is that at some point 
she lives enough lives and she experiences the death of Teddy or the loss of Teddy enough times and the horrors of World War II enough times. And she gets to understand her own abilities enough that at some point she says, okay, this is the life where I'm going to make all the decisions necessary to literally kill Hitler. So Eva's mentioned very briefly in the very first 1930 section when she first gets to Germany on her like big, you know, foreign tour after when she turns 20. Yes. Where she's like an exchange student. Right, she's an exchange student. She meets his family, and it's mentioned that in the next village, there's a photographer. The photographer is the personal photographer of the new chancellor, and that photographer has a daughter named Ava. So that's mentioned very briefly in passing. And so we're meant to believe that in this last life, this I guess the second to last life that we see in this book, she says, fuck it, I'm doing it. And she goes to Germany. She seeks out Ava, who she knows will be in that photography shop she befriends her in 1930 instead of much later in her life as she did in the other life and she sets a course towards getting into hitler's inner circle and being with him at a time and a place where she can pull a gun you know before he's the fuhrer and in the middle of a war and so it seems like these are all conscious choices she makes with this specific end game and target in mind the whole time uh and this is where the book sort of transformed again to me from this very lyrical a sort of meditation on fate and the different lives that women could leave to literally like a very short spy thriller where someone has a specific mission that they must undertake. It's just that the mission takes her entire life. She trains for it like from the time she's five. So here's the thing. I love that theory. I think you're probably right. <laughs> the reason that we would never get to actually see her leading up to killing Hitler is that suddenly all these implicit premonitions she's dealing with would have to be explicit and it would wreck the book. Right. We wouldn't actually want to read that book. And that seems to me like it's kind of a problem. Well, they just rip through it, basically. It starts at like 481 and then we very quickly go through. This is the life where we skip through almost every important scene of all the lives she's lived before and they all go by in like just a couple of paragraphs. And she just happens to make all the right choices. But I got the impression, at least, that those choices were made on purpose so that she could get there to that spot in December 1930 in Germany where she shoots Hitler. But so then, this is what confused me, but so then what? So she shoots Hitler, and then all the people around there shoot her. So in that world, World War II is averted, and that's great. And I, and Teddy survives, and everyone survives. You know, her Mrs. Wolf survives, and the... That poor bomb warden who they pick up and he comes apart like a Christmas cracker. He survives. Like, so everyone survives. But she doesn't get to see it. And we don't get to see it. And then we're immediately back in a brand new life. But in this life, the only difference that I can see is that Teddy didn't die when his plane went down. That, right. in fact, he survived. And so what are we meant to believe? Are we meant to believe that, like, this is a gift the universe gives her. She made this great sacrifice, and in one universe, she killed Hitler, so the universe did not have to put up with him and all that he wrought. So the gift that the universe gives her in this life is that she gets Teddy. Teddy doesn't die. Is that I, like what does it mean? Or that's a good one. Or you could argue that in her last two chances, one of them she chooses to save the world, and then the other one she chooses to save her brother. 
But so the how did she save him? I, did you get the sense that it was something she affirmatively did that kept him from dying when his plane went no, down? No, just that it's like it's her will that somehow right. she's able to imagine this different ending for herself and get herself to this place. Yeah, I thought it was kind of a thought experiment from the author just sort of saying, well, all right, here's what you think you want and then here's what you actually want. Mm. And so basically it didn't have so much to do with the motivations of the main character as with like – her showing us that sort of like the small, intimate, personal moments in this one character or this one family's life is actually more meaningful or as meaningful to us as like the grand events unfolding on a global scale. So I thought that was just sort of like a theory of novels or like a theory of what makes human experience meaningful. That's interesting. So like the idea is that is that in the end, even though it leads with it and that's the big one of the sort of the big splashy finale, one of the lessons of the novel is that killing Hitler is not actually the greatest thing everyone would do if they could time travel or live their lives over again. That like getting your own life right is as important or at least more resonant to most normal human beings. Well, and it packs a great deal of emotional punch, right? And then the last words of that life are Teddy mouthing something to her across a pub and she thinks that he's saying thank you to her, Mm -hmm. which suggests that there was some agency here, right? Right. And that actually made me wonder if she was not the only character who's in on this whole, you know, keep repeating your life game. I mean, because her mother, Sylvie, procures a surgical scissors with which she snips the cord that's strangling her baby. Oh, shit. (laughs) In one of the last scenes. I think that there's sort of a universalizing gesture at the end where, you know, characters seem sort of aware that this might be happening. Maybe they can do it, too. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Oh, man. And now I hope that's true. What also did you make of the sudden appearance at the end of the book of this little boy, Roland, who is the baby of Izzy? We've never heard any mention of him before. And all of a sudden, he is the child that drowns at the beach instead of Ursula. (laughs) Yeah, that was just weird. Well, I mean, well, there is an interesting, I mean, there is sort of a whole interesting side angle to this book, which is that sometimes the decisions she makes that save her, right, have terrible consequences for other people. You know, the time that she finally gets a kiss from Benjamin Cole, they don't save the girl who gets killed by like the drifter in town the way that she's saved in other lives. And she is saved. She doesn't die in the ocean that one day, but instead it's this boy who is Izzy's boy who in this particular life ended up living with them instead of being adopted by a German family. And it's true during the bombing of London in a number of different ways. People die in the Blitz who wouldn't have died otherwise. Right, who die in her stead in a lot of ways. People crushed under walls that in other lives she is crushed underneath. And so there is a lot going on with all these various choices that she makes and the sort of collateral damage that accrues even when she makes what seem to be the right choices or what we in reading the book at least would sort of describe as the right choices for her. There are still things that happen and lives that are not led. I mean, right up to the life of the child who is conceived when she's raped and that scene. And there's that terrible, so sad scene where she gets an abortion, an illegal abortion in London, but she has really has no idea what is going on. She doesn't know really even the mechanics of sex or gestation at all. And she's under the impression that they're just delivering the baby early to give it up for adoption like Izzy's baby had been. And then she asks after the abortion, oh, what happened to my baby? Is it okay? Did it go to a nice family? 
And that's like a crushing scene. And it's just a reminder of all the other lives that are not led by people or that are cut short in some way because of the the reliving of her life in different ways. Absolutely. And that's very necessary to the integrity of the book, right? Because if you were any change of anyone's path would result in all these other dominoes falling in ways that you can't control and can't prevent harm from resulting from that. Right. I wanted to ask you guys a little bit about the war scenes, because especially the Blitz scenes, I mean, a big chunk of the middle part of the novel is set during the Blitz and various lives that she lives during the Blitz. And those, Emily, as you said before, those lives seem to be at the core of her, of who she really is, and of the lives she was meant to lead. And they're awful in many ways. I mean, the the things that she sees and what London goes through, obviously, and what the world goes through is terrible, but they're... But it's so vividly presented and so she's so alive in those moments and the love affairs that she has and the friendships that she makes and the feelings that she feels are so incredible that it seemed like to me that this novel was sort of making an argument that no matter how awful war is, it also creates these like indelible experiences and helps you to live in a way that you would never find yourself living under ordinary circumstances. Is that like an overly rosy reading or does that seem right to you guys? No, I think you're absolutely right. And it helps explain why killing Hitler is not the only choice in the book, right? That right. there is a would be something lost in not having World War II happen, even if at the same time that seems totally crazy given all the incredible suffering. Yeah, I also get the sense that there's something about war that sort of magnifies just the author's vision of the universe in general, like its randomness, all the sort of chance things that are happening. And so, you know, war is like the regular world writ large. So I guess the stakes are higher and a wall can fall on you. And there are a lot more ways to die, I guess, in war. I mean, it actually almost was comic to me that, you know, you'd have this one chapter where she goes and saves a dog and that means a wall doesn't fall on her. And then the next chapter, the wall does fall on her. And these were the sort of rat-a-tat scenes that Dan talked about where just one after another, she keeps dying. It was sort of comic that she couldn't get out of that stupid apartment (laughs) building that kept collapsing on top of her. And even when she lived somewhere else, she went back to that stupid apartment building. And it collapsed. And it collapsed on her. I was like, fuck, get out of there. (laughs) In the end, I think we would all agree, yes, recommend Life After Life. Absolutely. It made me want to read a great deal more Kate Atkinson. I, in fact, have not read any Kate Atkinson before, even though she is an author who's been recommended to me over and over and over again. And I mean, the impression I get is that she is a real shapeshifter, that her books take all kinds of different forms. So I'm eager to see what other kinds of things she can do, because she sure took a maybe unpromising or gimmicky concept and pulled it off way better than I ever would have imagined with this one. Right. I think that's true. I mean, it didn't even feel gimmicky to me by the end. It felt pretty profound. Yeah. 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 That's a great <laughs> That's a great measure of a novel if it can take the gimmicky and make it profound. All right. A program note. In our next audiobook club, we're going to be discussing, as I mentioned before, The Flamethrowers. It's by Rachel Kushner. It is a big, widely acclaimed novel set in the 1970s. It's all about the New York City art scene and radical Italian separatists and motorcycle racing across the Western desert. It seems pretty awesome. I haven't read it yet, but I'm excited to. Please read it along with us or listen to it on audible.com and then join us for our discussion on September 6th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. 
You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. And also, you know, while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for the Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. That helps other people discover the show. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Emily Bazelon and Katie Waldman, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening. Step forward.